Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We're delighted to have David Hemingway here as our visiting lecturer today. He's going to be introduced in just a moment by Carolyn Murray. Um, to receive credit for today's, CME credit for today's talk, you code in WD94 and text that to the appropriate place, and you will automatically get your credits. There are no conflicts of interest being declared for this talk. And Carolyn is now going to introduce David. As you know, Dr. Murray is an assistant professor of medicine, of community and family medicine, and of TDI. She's reprising a role that she held from 1997 to 2005 as the section chief in occupational and environmental medicine and is back in that role at the moment. So Carolyn, will you tell us about David? Good morning. Um, it's a pleasure on behalf of the Section of Occupational Environmental Medicine and the Leadership Preventive Medicine Residency Program to welcome David Hemingway today. He comes to us from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where he's a uh, professor of health policy. Um, he earned his economics degrees, uh, undergraduate economics degree and Ph.D. in economics from Harvard University. And for over the past 20 years, he's directed the Harvard Injury Research Control Center. Um, He's authored numerous articles on the areas of injury prevention and really helped better, us better understand the contributing factors for the morbidity and mortality related to gun violence. Um, despite restrictions on federal funding, he's managed to continue to create uh, excellent scholarship in this area. And um, I can't think of a more topical um, theme for us to be considering both from the population health implications of gun violence and as it affects us clinically and as our society, and um, I look forward to David helping us understand our, our path forward, because I do, I certainly believe that this is, this is our lane uh, to be in. So with that, David. Uh, and thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. The name was changed uh, only a couple years ago. It was only cost, I think, $360 million. Uh, so, uh, and I'm talking about guns and public health. I have lots to talk about, but you can ask questions whenever. I just want to make you understand that this is a real public health problem in the United States. I want you to get a feeling for the public health approach. Uh, talk a little about data and research and how important it is in every area, but I'll talk specifically about unintentional firearms. Uh, Jesus. And then I'm going to talk about suicide, and then I'm going to talk about actually New Hampshire. And, and um, so. Big public health problem in the United States. Um, on an average day, uh, over 100 people are shot. Uh, I mean, 100 people die. More than we, we don't even know how many people are shot. Any place between 300 to 450, uh, because we don't have good data. But more than 100 people are dying in a day. Uh, since I graduated from college, more people, more civilians in the United States have been killed with guns than were killed on the all the battlefields and all the wars in American history. That's World War I, World War II, the Civil War where we were on both sides. If we don't do anything in the next decade, more than a million uh, Americans will be shot. Um, the gun lobby likes to compare us to Honduras, El Salvador, Jamaica, and uh, uh, South Africa, and in that comparison, we actually look pretty good, but if you compare us to all, all the high-income countries, any of the high-income countries, more than two dozen, uh, we really have a problem. Now, uh, what we know is that compared to the other high-income countries, we actually are very similar. People think we have a crime problem in the United States or a violence problem. We don't. 
We are an average country in terms of all sorts of crime, in terms of uh, sexual assault, in terms of robbery, in terms of burglary. We're an average country in terms of all violence measures. Uh, when they do studies of bullying in schools, we're an average country. We're in, our children don't seem to be more depressed or more aggressive than children in any of the other developed countries. But compared to every other developed country, we're talking, is, is we have lots more guns, and particularly we have lots of handguns. Uh, more handguns now are produced each year than long guns. Uh, these other countries that have guns, like Australia and Canada and so forth, they have a lot of guns, but they're long guns. And we have by far the weakest gun laws uh, of any developed country, and depending on how you count, it's between 24 and 30 other developed countries. And so we have not surprisingly big problems. This just gives you a feeling uh, about the size of the problem. I can look at any group. But I'm going to look at 5 to 14-year-olds. This is K through 8. I picked them because uh, it's, there's so much blame in this area, and it's hard to blame a 10-year-old for getting killed. Um, and what this shows is that this is the mortality rate ratio. An average child in the United States is more likely to be murdered with a gun than the average child in Germany or Japan or Italy or uh, New Zealand. And it's, it's not 50% more likely or twice as likely or four times more likely or 10 times more likely. It is 18 times more likely. Uh, this is from 2010. We just updated this, and now it's, it, it's actually up to 20 times. Uh, our non-gun homicide rate victimization rate is average. Uh, our gun suicide rate, 13-year-old... Uh, uh, his girlfriend breaks up with him or he flunks uh, a class and he comes home and he's depressed and he finds his dad semi-automatic bang and he's dead. Uh, we're 11 times more likely, 11 times more likely. Our unintentional firearm death rate is 12 times. Uh, in the public health I, school I teach at, there's so many international students and all they say is, why don't you guys do something about this? Why don't you do anything about this? If you lined up uh, all the children in all the developed worlds who were murdered with guns, all the children from Japan, all the children from Korea, all the children, you name it, from something like 95% of those children would be American children. Uh, it, is, it is shocking. Um, and there's lots of other costs other than just deaths. We have the non-fatals, the traumatic brain injuries, and so, so forth. Uh, one of the things there's lots of good evidence on is the exposure to violence, uh, how that uh, really increases the risk of long-term uh, physical and mental uh, problems. Uh, we, you know, gun violence in the street destroys the social fabric of lots of communities, but with a huge, huge cost. So you've got to believe we have a problem. Uh, now I want to talk about the public health approach to that problem. And if you ask me, what is the public health approach, in one sentence I would say, the public health approach is to, it's trying to make it easy for people to stay healthy and difficult for to become unhealthy. So what does that mean for obesity? It means you're trying to make it really easy to get uh, really nutritious, healthy foods, really difficult to get junk foods. Make it really, really health, uh, easy to get good exercise, really difficult to be a couch potato. What do we do in the United States? We do just the opposite, and we are surprised that we have an obesity problem. Um, the focus of public health is harm reduction, um, and uh, so it's really all about prevention. What we've learned in all sorts of areas in public health is that the most cost-effective way of 
reducing the problem is typically to go upstream rather than downstream. For any injury, for any piece of violence, there's probably more than a dozen things that could have prevented it. Uh, you can focus on one or the other. We tend to try to focus on the most cost-effective ones, and they are typically upstream. The public health approach is about populations, not individuals. When, when I give a talk, say, to psychiatrists, uh, I might ask them, why do you think there's so four times as many suicides in Arizona than in Massachusetts, where I'm from, uh, even though the populations are the same size? And their answer typically, if they're honest, is, ah, that's interesting. We didn't know that. Uh, and why should they? Because that's not what they're interested in. They're interested in individuals. We're interested in populations. And then I sort of force them, why, why do you, you know, come on, why, why do you think that? And they come up with, I don't know, there's too much sun, there's not enough psychiatrists, whatever, um, you know, too many immigrants. Uh, it's none of those things. And, and why are there so many more suicides in Arizona than in Massachusetts? That's all. Right. That's going to be the answer to all my questions. Uh, now, the public health approach is you've got to agree there's a problem, and then the right approach is you try to get everybody involved. You try to get all groups involved. Um, it's really broad and inclusive, and you're trying to make sure that everybody uh, is part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And it's all about shared responsibilities. And if I have time, I'll talk about uh, how we're working with gunners across the United States in ways that are really trying to reduce the gun problem. Uh, um, so. One of the things is you're trying to step back and think, how can different groups help? If we all agree there's a problem, uh, how could gun, what could gun manufacturers do? What could gun distributors do? What could gun owners do and trainers? What could politicians do? What could hairdressers do? What could uh, attorneys do, the Surgeon General, parole boards? And of course, what could physicians do? And what could they do better? And, and I could talk about all those. Uh, it's not just about changing laws, which people talk a lot about. It's about changing social norms. And I'll Talk about that if I have a chance. Um, I want to talk briefly about the importance of data in research. Um, I wrote a book a, a number of years ago uh, really for uh, the parents and the um, significant others and the children of my students. Uh, because they look, go to public health school and nobody quite knows exactly what it is. Is this an extension of medical school? What's going on? Uh, and I wrote this book. This is 64 documented successes about how the world has been made safer while we were sleeping. Uh, and 36 heroes whom you've never heard of who have made the world a safer place. And I tell my students, if, you, you know, if your significant other does not understand what's going on, have them read this book. Um, and reading, you know, writing the book made me you know, one of the many reasons I'm so optimistic because there are just so many success stories in public health. Now, in virtually every success story, data and research mattered. I was so happy because that's what I do. Is, uh, and data and research actually mattered a lot. It wasn't the only thing that mattered, but it's the underpinnings. Uh, I just want to mention, you know, my statistics teacher, uh, when someone would say it's easy to lie with statistics, he would always say it's a lot easier to lie without statistics. Um, <laughs> let, let, me, let me talk about just data, because uh, one of my proudest things is that we were really instrumental in helping creating what's created what's called the National Violent Death Reporting System there. Uh, for every violent death, every suicide, every homicide, every unintentional gun death, there are about a, you know, 50 to 100 pieces of information collected consistently and comparably across all states. So you get, and it's really rich data. They have narratives. We have narratives from both the medical examiner and the police, and so you really understand, so you can learn lots and lots. 
So let me just talk about one of the many areas we've been looking at, uh, accidental children death. Um, so there are people out there um, who are saying things which don't seem to be right. So many of the good hypotheses uh, uh, one gets to, I get to uh, be able to do research on is people will say things, and I'd say, that's not right, uh, but there's no research on it. And so, and so one of the things which uh, one of the, uh, this guy's quoted all the time from the gun lobby, says over and over and over, about two-thirds of accidental gun deaths to children uh, are not shots fired by the little kids but rather by adult males with criminal backgrounds. And so if that were true, maybe you should do something about adult males with criminal backgrounds, but now we have the National Violent Death Reporting System. We can actually figure out what really is going on. And it's not adult males with criminal backgrounds at all. So from kids uh, 0 to 14, it's kids killing kids. Uh, about a third of the unintentional firearm deaths are self-inflicted. About a third are other children or shooters. About a third are slightly older kids. Sometimes they're in the same grade. A 15-year-old shoots a 14-year-old. Uh, and about a sixth are adults. They're almost all parents. There's no indication at all that they're criminals. They're hunting with their kids or whatever. Now, why is it so important to have the data? Because not only do you know about understand the problem, but then it indicates the kinds of things you should do for solutions. So if you look at the data here, you see, sort of see just this is one little thing broken out by age, and you see, gee, it's, you know, it's, it's the two- to four-year-olds have a little higher rate, and it tends to go up. Uh, it's mostly all other-inflicted except oh, for the two- to four-year-olds. Uh, it's almost always at home except finally when you reach 11, 12, 13, 14. And so mostly these kids are being shot. Who are they being shot by? A sibling? Which sibling? A brother? Which brother? An older brother? Uh, and by their best friend. Uh, but two- to four-year-olds uh, are different. Uh, and um, children who are shot again uh, are shot if you're shot at a friend's house, it's almost all boys, and it's almost all somewhat older boys. So what kind of policies does that say? Well, for two- to four-year-olds, you know, we had a, used to have an aspirin problem in the United States where kids would find aspirin and, and suck it up and, and die, and then we had child-proof aspirin bottles, which for almost eliminated that entire problem. We could have child-proof guns. Two- to four-year-olds, uh, uh, right now, uh, so many kids are dying who are two- to four-year-olds when they shoot themselves. Wesson of Smith & Wesson fame, I think 120 years ago, built a gun which was childproof. It's not high-tech. This is the 21st century. What Wesson did is he made it so uh, when you pull the trigger, you have to put a little uh, pressure on the, on the uh, handle of the gun in order for it to go the same way to open an aspirin bottle. You have to push down and turn as opposed to just turn, and it solves the problem. Um, the, uh, for there are some groups which are pushing the ask campaign. If your kid's going to go uh, play with a friend, you should ask. Incredibly, I have a nine-year-old daughter who lives in you know, Massachusetts where there aren't many guns. That is not a big problem for us. There's, she's not going to get killed at a friend's house. But if I had a 13-year-old son who was in New Hampshire or Mississippi, I would ask. Um, and then we read the cases. And so many of these cases is the kids did not know the gun was loaded. Uh, they find their dad semi-automatic. They take out the magazine. Here are all the bullets. They think, hey, it's fine, and then they, and they pull the trigger. And most of the time, nothing bad happens. You just shoot through the wall, whatever. But every once in a while, they kill their best friend. It's like, this is crazy. So what can you do? Oh, we could blame the kid. We could blame the parents. 
Or we could do in public health, we could solve the problem. Uh, and one easy way to solve the problem is make it so you basically, when you take out the magazine, that the gun won't shoot. And some semi-automatics are like that, but most aren't. And you would eliminate this problem over time. Um, now, one of the big problems in uh, this area is that there's been a concerted effort by the gun lobby to ensure that we don't collect data and that uh, there's no funds for research. There's so many data points that we could get data. Uh, the BRFSS, the, the uh, CDC used to have uh, gun questions, so we knew what percent of households in all the states had guns and whether, how they were storing their guns. They were eliminated in 2004. Uh, tracing data, there's good data about uh, guns which are traced. Uh, Researchers are not allowed to get those data, uh, and on and on. Uh, there's been a concerted, effective effort to make sure there's no government funding for research. CDC, at its peak, was only doing $2.6 million a year of gun research, which is nothing. Now it's doing zero. Uh, CDC uh, is afraid. I'm at conferences like this. People from CDC are afraid to say the word guns or firearms. If I talk to a friend at CDC, uh, and we talk at all about guns, he will say, wait a second, he will go out into the parking lot and call me from his cell phone. Um, it is just incredible. Uh, here's uh, something that somebody, you know, tried to do is compared to the size of the problem, if you just look at terms of deaths, how many people are dying compared to other places where people are dying, you would have predicted that over a recent 12-year period, the feds should have funded $1.4 billion in uh, research. Instead, they funded slightly less than that. Uh, in terms of uh, med, med publications, you would have expected about 40,000 publications. Instead, you have less than 2,000 publications. So we know a lot, but there's so, 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 so much we don't know. Uh, I'm always asked by reporters, well, what was the one thing you need to know? And it's like, no, it's not one thing. We know nothing. Uh, last year, we were the first time ever there was a peer-reviewed journal article that we wrote about gun theft, even though there's something like 350,000 guns a year are stolen. This is one easy way for guns to get into criminal hands. Uh, gun training, last year was the first year that anyone had written a, uh, an article focusing on gun training. We sent uh, people out to actually take gun training classes to see what was being taught in gun training classes, which is a little frightening. Um, and we should have lots of articles. There's been zero articles about open carry, gun carrying. Uh, there's so much we don't know. When reporters ask me questions, I can answer some of them, but once they scratch the surface, it's like I have to answer, we really don't know. We really don't know. Nobody really knows. We think this, but we don't know. Let me talk about suicide prevention. I want to talk about how you can reduce suicide without changing anybody's mental health. I want to talk about how you can reduce suicide without changing any laws. There are more suicides than homicides in the United States. There are more gun suicides than gun homicides in the United States. If you talk about suicide in the United States, you have to talk about guns. Over half or slightly over half of all suicides in the United States are gun suicides. That's not gun attempts, suicide attempts. So virtually very a tiny percentage of all suicides uh, attempts do people use guns. But guns are incredibly lethal. The case fatality rate is something like 90%. If you take 1,000 pills, you have about 2 to 3% chance of dying. All right. So you talk about suicide, everybody wants to talk about the why problem. You know, why did this person commit suicide? What was wrong? We talk about the how problem. How did the person die from suicide? 
Uh, and some of the greatest success stories in suicide prevention have nothing to do with mental health. Sylvia Plath died, as a lot of Britons died. Uh, they put their heads in the oven. Uh, is a really, it's actually a good way to die. It's very painless. It's non-disfiguring. Uh, and then the toxicity of the gas in the ovens changed. And um, uh, what happened is people still put their heads in the oven, and after a while, they'd get tired, and they'd take their head out, and they'd go about their business. Um, the suicide rate dropped by one-third, 30, you know, 30%, over 30% drop in suicides just by that one little change. Nobody's mental health changed at all. Sri Lanka. In the 90s, uh, Sri Lanka had the highest rate of suicide in the entire world. There, horribly, they would drink pesticides. Uh, terrible, terrible, horrible, painful death. Then, finally, the, the, the country banned the most toxic of pesticides, uh, and the suicide rate dropped 50%. People still drank the pesticides, but they didn't die. Uh, and there was no change in attempts or suicide by other methods, and agricultural production didn't change at all. Incredible success story. The Israeli Defense Fund had a big suicide uh, problem. And one of the biggest things was that uh, these young uh, men and women would take their guns home on the weekends and they'd kill themselves. And so what they did is they said, you can't take your guns home. And suicide rate dropped, the overall suicide rate dropped 40% by that one little change. No change in mental health, no change in levels of depression, whatever. How could this be? How could this be? Well, the answer is because very few suicides are really carefully planned suicides. It's not like a, you know, you're 90 years old and your wife just died and you've been, you know, have terminal cancer and you've been planning this for years and now you're going to do it. Most suicides, the, the, the crisis is often pretty brief. Um, here's, you know, the duration. There have been a lot of studies, a lot of suicides. The, the first time the person thought, I wake up, the world is so black, I am going to commit suicide. Uh, five to ten minutes, and they've tried to commit suicide. If a gun is around, they'll use the gun. If the gun isn't around, they won't use the gun. They're not in the best frame of mind to carefully calculate what should they do. By the time they drive to Boston to get in a high rise and jump off, they've changed their mind. Um, uh, and, yeah. um, and lethality varies greatly. I talked about that. So intent matters for suicide, but so does the means. So does the means available. Uh, this just shows uh, the deaths uh, in the United States. Half of the, uh, deaths, suicide deaths in the United States or a little more are from firearms. If you're a hospitalist, you never see these people. They go to the morgue. Who you see is you think uh, suicide attempters are people who overdose with poisoning or, or use sharp instruments. That's true. That's who the, the attempters are, but those aren't who the suicide deaths are. But is it a truly life saved? Say the person... There's no gun around, and instead they take pills, they, they come to the hospital and you save them. What proportion of serious attempters, these, aren't, these are serious attempters where people, they thought they were going to die, objectively they should have died, they shot themselves in the heart, they jumped in front of a bus and got hit, and they didn't die. They've been followed for like 20 years. What percent die from suicide? What do you think? Less than 10. <laughs> You've saved their life if they don't have the lethal means available. Um, 
What explains the great difference? I, I talked about uh, across. We've done a lot of these ecological studies. There, uh, of what explains the differences across cities, across states, in suicide? There's a huge difference. There's a fourfold difference in suicide rates across states. That's not. There's much less variation in terms of heart disease deaths across states, cancer deaths across states. What explains the huge variations? And I mentioned it turns out not to be mental health. How could that be? It's not suicide. It's not even suicide attempts. And what it is is the guns. So this is just looking at women. So I just pick any group you want. This is not a study, but this is just trying to give you the, a flavor of the size of the problem. So this is U.S. women over the past decade. Um, and I've divided states into high gun states and low gun states. Not high suicide states and low suicide, but high gun states and low gun states where there's lots of guns. These states also have very weak gun laws. The, the, the low gun states have very strong gun laws. Trying to make, so you have about the same number of people of women years at risk in both, in both types of states. Um, and what do you find? And you can sort of see, uh, in, okay. In terms of unintentional firearm deaths in the low gun states, 25 women died unintentionally with a firearm. In the high gun states, it was 231. Uh, gun suicides, uh, 700 and something in the low gun states compared to 5,669 in the high gun states. No difference in non-gun suicides. Uh, gun homicides, a big difference, but it's not a, like an eight-fold difference. Why is it only a three-fold difference for gun homicides? And the answer is crime guns move. The suicide and the unintentional firearm death, these are home guns. You know, the, the homicide guns, Massachusetts. Where, where, do, where do criminals, when guns are traced, where do criminals in New Hampshire get their guns? New Hampshire. Uh, where do criminals in Maine get their guns? From Maine. Where do criminals in Massachusetts get their guns? From Maine and New Hampshire. <laughs> no? And the evidence about suicide is overwhelming. There have been 16 case control studies. And you know what a case control study is, right? You take, here's, you take all, all these people who died in suicide, then you look at other people who look very similar, except they didn't die in a suicide, or they attempted suicide, or they had mental health problems. And what's the thing that always jumps out is the suicides have guns in the home, and the non-suicides, and the people who didn't die don't have. Oh, maybe it's not the gun. Maybe it's something else. Um, Maybe people who have guns are different. Maybe they have more likely to have mental health problems. Maybe they are more likely to have seriously considered suicide. Maybe they are more likely to attempt suicide. And people have studied this, and the answer is no, no, no. It's the guns. Um, and one of the things I've been doing is surveys of gun researchers. Now, finally, everybody in the suicide area understands this. Gun researchers, of course, understand this. Um, yeah. I want to talk about finding common ground. Um, uh, and, and this really started in New Hampshire um, with the Gunshot Project. Um, gun organizations are very safety-oriented, uh, and we're just trying to expand their focus to include preventing firearm deaths. Uh, right now, even though... Okay, so 10 years ago... Suicide people were really not talking, as suicide experts were not really talking about guns, they're talking about the, all the why, but now everybody understands it. Every state health department suicide prevention plan has, emphasizes the role of guns. So that's good. But in terms of physicians, in terms of the general population, nobody believes that a gun in the home could affect suicide. If you really want to commit suicide, you will, period. 
And that's not what the evidence shows up. People don't understand. And we've been spending a lot of time trying to convince physicians of that semi-successfully. Still only less, only about 30% of physicians in the United States really believe that. Um, and only about uh, 15, 1-5% of the general public, whether you're a gun owner or not, believes that a gun could affect suicide. Um, and so we're trying to figure out lots of ways to do it, to, to get the message. And uh, again, we started in New Hampshire working with the Gunshot Project, and now uh, over 20 states' gun shops are trying to do something about suicide. Uh, and this is really new entirely. Uh, so a woman comes to your gun shop, says she wants to buy a gun, and, and you say, what kind do you want? She says, I don't care. And you say, well, how about this one? She says, that's fine. And you say, oh, how many, you know, how many bullets would you like to buy? And she says, one's enough. Uh, do not sell her the gun. You don't need that business, but you can help that woman, right? Uh, and now uh, we're trying to spread that, make it a message. We're now working with gun trainers. Um, so, Kathy Barber of our group, she just went to Utah. Utah is the concealed, it's really the gun capital uh, of the United States in terms of training. This is where, if you want to be a concealed carry uh, trainer, this is where you go. Uh, and so somehow she got invited uh, there and she talked to the gun trainers there. And she said, and she's always so great, you know, she said, you're doing such a good job trying to reduce unintentional firearm deaths uh, in Utah. But did you know that for every unintentional firearm death in Utah, there are 80 gun suicides? And they had no idea, because they don't look at the big data. And they said, is that really right? And she said, well, you know, there's a group like this. Raise your hand if you know someone who unintentionally killed themselves with a gun, if you know personally no, and about four hands go up. Raise your hand if you know someone personally who committed suicide with a gun, and every hand goes up. And why is that? Because they're all gunners, and they're you know, and this is who's the, the greatest risk. And and they said, gee, we didn't know that. And she said, well, you know, don't you think you should be teaching a little bit about that? How about if we created a module? We worked together about what you could do to reduce the problem. And so she created this module, and they love it. They love it. And the module basically is the notion. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. And the notion is friends don't let friends who are going through a bad patch keep their guns. So the notion is your friend, you know, he's just getting divorced and he is talking crazy and he is drinking. It should be your responsibility and he should know it's your responsibility to, quote, babysit his guns for a while until he gets a new girlfriend and everything's fine and he gets his guns back. And they think this is great. Uh, this is being called the 11th commandment of gun safety. Um, and then she, they said, oh, we should be doing this. And she, then she said, how can we get, you know, all the, there's so many gun trainers, how can we get them to, to, to start doing this? And they thought, and they said, well, that's too hard to educate everybody. We'll just make it, we know everybody in the legislature, all Republicans like us, we'll make it mandatory. So Utah now, if you teach a gun, a concealed carry training class in Utah, you have to, by law, teach a module about suicide prevention. And then they said, you know, we, can, we care about that, and we understand data. We want to learn more about that. So they got the state legislator to, to put up $150,000 to study gun suicide in Utah. And incredibly, they gave us the money. And so one of the big things, though, they did, which is no other state has ever done, is they said, we want everybody to link their data. We're mandating it. So we had every suicide in Utah. 
and then we have every medical record of every suicide in Utah, and then we got um, whether or not they had a concealed carry permit, and then we got whether or not at the time of their death they could have passed a background check, whether they're a criminal or they're not a criminal. Uh, and now we're getting every, every gun where every gun is being traced, and we're going to know, and we're going to be able to get the data for where the gun was originally purchased, how long they had the gun, was it their gun or somebody else's gun. And it's really incredible, and we're going to get really good information, and it's because of working together. And what matters so much, and we're now you know, figuring out ways to, you know, the message really matters, um, how we sit. The United States is so tribal, unfortunately. Um, we said, you know, in, in, the, um, vi in the video that was made and the, in the message, uh, we said, well, why don't we say this? And they said, no, oh, you can't say that, you can't say that. They said, okay, well, what should we say? And then they said, you have to say this. And it's, I think, isn't that exactly the same thing? I mean, it's, it's, and they said, no, 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 this means one thing, this, and it's okay, that's fine. And then it's the messenger. They don't listen to somebody in public health. Um, who they listen to is their own, and if, the, if somebody who's in the gun world and they really trust that person says something. You know, in, in New Hampshire, the reason so many gun shops now have some suicide prevention method, message is because one of the gun shop owners who everybody respected said, we ought to do this. And so they did, and if public health had just said it, it would not have worked at all. Um, so a decade ago, suicide prevention practitioners weren't talking about guns. A decade ago, firearm experts weren't talking about suicide and now we have gun shops and shooting ranges uh, talking about uh, uh, suicide, and we have gun training now in three states, including Massachusetts, which are required to have a suicide prevention model module. And again, only 15, 30% of physicians and 15% of the public understands, and we're slowly trying to change that. Um, so, okay. Uh, why I love and hate New Hampshire. I love New Hampshire because this is where we started the gun shop project, and it's really because of the great New Hampshire uh, public health people. Uh, why I don't like New Hampshire, again, is... So here's Massachusetts. Here, here's this, here's the, our six New England states, uh, and you can see we're bigger than New Hampshire, and we're much more urbanized, and we're much more non-white. Uh, but you guys got the guns, and you guys have terrible gun laws. Um, suicide, uh, you guys have... Twice our suicide rate, rate why? Because you have four times our firearm suicide rate. We have about the same non-firearm suicide rate. So there's three states in, in New England with lots of guns and three states without lots of guns, and the non-firearm suicide rate varies up and down. But it's always sort of about in the same range. The non-firearm suicide rate is really, really, I mean, the firearm suicide rate is really, really different. And this is what you see. It's a little microcosm of what you see across the United States. Guns really matter. Um, Unintentional firearm deaths. Ah, why? You know, it's not a huge, huge problem, but where's the problem is where the guns are. Of course, we don't have a lot of unintentional firearm deaths in Massachusetts because we don't have any firearms. Um, homicide. You know, you, you know we have, only, we have uh, more poverty. We have you know, more issues. We have more gangs because we have big cities where you can get gangs. You know, and when I talk in Vermont, it's like, of course you don't have any gangs. You don't have any city. It's really hard. It's hard enough to form a gang, and then you, where's another gang to fight it? I mean, you just can't bring them together. You have to drive 40 miles. You can't do that. You know, we're able to, here's a project, here's a project they can walk out the street and fight each other. Um, but, you know, the differences aren't that great, and if you just look at the whites, there's no difference at all. It's not like people in Massachusetts even, uh, you know, we have... 
Uh, and no, homicide's not the big problem. It's the suicides. And then, as I mentioned, um, what I don't like is um, Maine and New Hampshire. You know, this is where our guns come from. Uh, New Hampshire, three-quarters of your guns, uh, crime guns come from New Hampshire. Uh, in Maine, and only about a third of our crime guns come, and we, our two major sources are New Hampshire and Vermont, uh, New Hampshire and Maine. And we're huge. We're so much bigger than you. We should be the, the source of your guns, not vice versa. It's the, the little... Um, and what's really sad is that nobody in nor you know, the north of us cares. The people in Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, do not care that your guns are being used... One of the things that we've been trying to, to, to do very successfully in, in Boston is when someone shoots somebody else in Boston, instead of saying who shot whom and da da, I want these dead, is the first question that should be asked. And now the first question the mayor asked, the first question the police chief asked, the first question is where did the gun come from? Because these guns are coming in. Some adult is making money bringing guns into our city. Um, we. Uh, do lots and lots of surveys of uh, uh, young people, of teenagers in uh, inner city areas uh, throughout the United States. And we ask them, is it easy to get a gun? Yes. Uh, why, do you, why do you carry a gun? Because I'm afraid. Why are you afraid? Because other kids have guns. Uh, what kind of world would you like to live in? One where it's easy for teens like you to get guns, where it's difficult or impossible for teens like you to get guns. And the overwhelming answer is they want to live in a world where it's impossible for teens like them to get guns. Even the boys who have admitted to illegally gun carrying want to live in a world where it's impossible for people like them to get guns. This is a world where adults in every other developed country have provided for their children. It is not the world that we have provided for our children, and that's why. Um, in New Hampshire, uh, there are 60 times the number of gun suicides as accidental gun deaths. There are 14 times the suicides as homicides. There are 14 times the gun suicides as the gun homicides. Uh, across New England, states with more guns have more gun suicides, so more total suicides. There's no evidence of substitution. And, and even if there is substitution, it probably doesn't matter. If you go from you know, attempting with something that's going to kill you 90% of the time to something that's going to kill you 2% of the time, it's not going to show up in the data that there's any substitution, real substitution that matters. Um, and not surprisingly, where the crime gun's coming from uh, throughout to the southern part of New England, it's from the northern part of New England. Let me stop. Thank you. Well, a very information-rich and provocative presentation. Um, we can take questions, so please. Uh, Bob McClellan. So uh, after the Parkland shooting, a lot of uh, youth interested in gun control. Yes. I just wonder if you uh, worked with them at all, because it seems as though they are very much focused on the, the mass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, well, everyone's focused on what they're... That, that's what affects them, and it's affect... I mean, you have to realize that these young people, their whole lives... They, I mean, they were born before, after Columbine. Their whole lives has been the fear of guns. And now, um, you know, when I was a kid in Queens, um, we used to, I, I used to wear a dog tag. Um, and there used to be uh, uh, drills all the time. And, and it wasn't until I was older I realized why I was wearing a dog tag, because it was the Korean War. And the answer was because they were going to 
find out my charred remains. They had to have a dog tag. To, to, to. And these kids, they're, they're unlocked. They're, they, they, they have more, you know, uh, suspect, tri- dr- whatever it's called, where the shooter drills, then they have fire alarm drills. And, it, and it's like affected their lives, and they're afraid, and it's like, what? Oh, it was, we spent so much money on that. Um, so, yeah, that's what, but they are very good. They are because they care about, they understand that most of the deaths uh, in terms of homicide, not in terms of suicide, most of the deaths are in the more rural areas. In terms of homicide, uh, most of the deaths are in the cities and it's off and it's disproportionately minorities and poor people. So they're linking with those people and they're saying, you know, in every country when there's a mass shooting, this is the time to do something because it gets everybody aware. So in Australia, after the mass shooting, they didn't just try to stop mass shootings, but they tried to change all the problems caused by guns. In the same way in Scotland and the Dunblane shootings, this is the time that people are aware they try to change everything. And this is what I think the, the, the Parkland students are really doing. They are, uh, 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 Emma and David came to my house for dinner um, a month ago, I guess. Uh, and the, the sad, sad, they're, they're great. And David's coming to um, Harvard as an undergraduate, which is really, really nice. But they are so great. Uh, but they had to come with a bodyguard. I mean, they're, they're 18, 19 years old, and, and it's because the people on the other side have guns and are threatening. Yeah, in fact. I often hear people who live in rural, isolated areas say that they have a handgun because they want to be able to use it to protect themselves. Yeah. And my inclination is always to say to them that that, de- that gun is probably more likely to be used in an accidental death or a suicide yes. than it is for yeah. I wonder if there are any data that shows... Yeah, there's some data. It's not as great as you think. But yes, absolutely, there are studies which indicate that. And we don't, uh, we ask, we do all these uh, study uh, surveys. And the reason that people have guns is because they're afraid, and, and particularly handguns are for self-defense. And who do they have them for self-defense against is strangers. And strangers virtually never kill you. I mean, as far as... The best estimate is, you know, in terms of the 75 or 80% of homicides which are, quote, solved, where there's a prime suspect... Uh, and only 2% of those is it a stranger. And that's not who, who, who you're at risk for. But, but a lot of people have guns. If you want guns, that's fine. Just you know, store them well and understand that they're a danger. And yes, it's going to increase your suicide risk by a lot. But it's still, like in so many injuries, it's still pretty rare. So you, most people say, oh, I had a gun. You know, my family had a gun and nobody died. And that's mostly likely true. Because say in your family, say it's, um, for an average family, um, make, uh, there's only there's less than a little less than one percent a chance that over 70 years someone will die of a suicide. Uh, you just increase it to, from one percent to three percent. It's still pretty low, but it's like <laughs> who you're going to see who all the dead ends are are the people with the guns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nobody knows. So there's no good evidence about what the quality of law enforcement is. Um, certainly, there's more guns in rural areas because guns have lots of uses, and much more uses in rural areas to kill varmints and stuff than in urban areas. I mean, there's no reason at all to have a gun except, I guess, if you can find a shooting range or. Um, uh, but yeah, the, there's there's. There's more probably reason to fear. You can less rely on police if they're half an hour away than if they're two minutes away. What about big cities? I mean, you know, there's apparently a policeman, there's 
so badly trained that they should keep with the skin color. So, um, I mean, is there any way to assess this? Uh, there might be, but again, there's been no good data and no good studies. We, 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 um, we've been doing studies about police killings, and to, to recognize, in the United States, a U.S. police officer, say, to a, compared to a police officer in Germany, is 30 times more likely to be killed on the job than a police officer in Germany, 30 times. And we've looked, where, why are police officers killed so much more often in some states than in others per capita? And what's the answer? Guns. So police officers being killed. So police in the United States are 30 times more likely to kill civilians than police officers, say, in Germany. Where are they more likely to kill? What's, some states, they kill a lot of people. Some states, they don't. What states are they most likely to kill civilians? Where there's guns. Why? Because they're, you know, if you're a police officer and it's a domestic violence situation, you go, if there's no gun, you're not going to get killed. If there is a gun, you might get killed. Police kill civilians almost all. Who are the police who are police protecting when they kill a civilian? Themselves, always. We've read, I've just read a thousand cases. And it's, okay, question? Can you just briefly mention, can you say more about the interaction between homicide and poverty? Um, okay, so uh, there's more crime in areas where people have worse education, where people have been discriminated against, where people uh, don't um, have uh, you know, good futures ahead of them, where there aren't reasonable jobs that they can get. Uh, and so not surprisingly, uh, there's more homicides. And that's true across the world. It's just that we put guns in that situation, and so there's much more killing. If you put, you know, I mean, get, pe people in Australia, gangs in Australia, the people are tough, it's tougher, tougher than people in the United States. I mean, they, they play real football without shoulder pads and helmets and, and stuff. Uh, but when they fight, they, you know, fight with broken glass or they fight with knives or whatever. Um, and people don't die. I was raised in Queens, and the tough guys had brass knuckles, and occasionally somebody had a switchblade, but there weren't guns hanging around. If there were guns, people would have died. With brass knuckles, you get injured, and it's not nice. And you... There's so many ways to reduce problems. It, if... You know, if we got, if we, if, ever, if there was good parenting, we'd reduce a lot of problems, including violence problems. And, and thus, if there's less violence, there's less gun violence. If, if we had less racism, we'd reduce lots of problems. We're just looking at one of the ways, and sort of seems like the easiest way, which is sort of to change the availability of lethal means. Because what guns do is they make hostile situations lethal. David, would you yeah. build on that? You alluded before about changing social norms, yeah. and you're just touching on it now. Could you go into that a bit more? I mean, one, one way is getting rid of guns or making guns safer. What yeah. is the other and more difficult pathway? Um, I, I, I think, I mean, there's so many norms, I think, that have to be changed. So it's not like, oh, if we only change this one norm. I mean, a big social norm has to be changed. If you want to be, there's so many, you know. People who own guns are looking very, very similar to people who don't own guns. People who go bowling look pretty similar to people who don't go bowling. I mean, it's just something. And But the problem is these are lethal weapons, and they're often used badly, and people get angry sometimes, and they have to, and, you know, the nicest people sometimes get angry, the nicest people sometimes get depressed, the nice, and, you know, for car drivers, we don't divide them into good car drivers and bad car drivers. We know that 
there are people who are better and people who are worse. So one of the things that we really want to change is how people store their guns. Because, again, one common way for guns to get into the hands of people who don't have them, who should not, everyone agrees, should not have them, is through theft. There's a variety of ways, but that's a big way. And so uh, that would be a really nice norm to change, is that people understand that they need to store their guns better. Because the United States, we store their guns terribly. We do this survey. Uh, we have to change social norms about uh, uh, the understanding about children. Uh, a lot of uh, parents misunderstand uh, their own children. I mean, pediatricians understand about the development of children, and parents aren't experts, and they don't. And so we do these surveys where a parent and the child comes into the pediatrician. We just separate them, and we ask about guns. And the parents will say, oh, yeah, we have a gun, but the kid doesn't know about it, or the kid's never touched it, and we ask the kids. It's like the kids say, you know, they think we don't know where the Christmas presents are. You know, we know everything we know. It's like, come on. And, you know, if we ever touch the gun, sure, they go out and, you know, we play with the guns. Um, and the parents don't understand. So we want to say social understanding that, that this, you bring this thing into the house, this weapon, you have to understand that, you know, probably nothing terrible will happen when it really increases the odds that something bad will happen. And so you have to prepare for that. The same way, you know, if you have a big swimming pool and you have lots of little babies, you know, little kids, you have to worry about that. You could drown. It's not, it's not rocket science. But the problem here is that there are real externalities in the sense that these guns not only are killing the, 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 the gun owners and the gun owners' family, but they're being used also you know, by people who we don't want to have guns. And, and um, you know, every gun in the United States begins as a legal gun. And we've done, we've done really, you know, every machine gun, machine guns are in the United States. It begins as illegal machine guns, but we've had rules that make it imp virtually imp really, really hard for the wrong people to get machine guns. And it's worked. Yeah. No, I mean, what, one of the big things we know in public health, though, is that uh, the most effective way to um, reduce problems is not to make it so kids have to learn to do things all the time. I mean, if you, you want kids... You know, you want to train kids, yes, but the, but the most effective way is to make it so the environment is safe for children. There have been a, a, num a good number of studies of, uh, quote, the Eddie Eagle program, which, you know, don't touch, tell an adult, and so forth. And uh, they put kids in a, in a room who have taken this training. They put kids who haven't taken the training. They hide a gun. The kids find the gun with training, without training. The boys pick up the gun. And some of the boys say the mantra, you know, don't touch the gun, tell them it's open. They're pushed, holding it in, they're, put, they're pulling the trigger. I mean, they're kids. They're not, you know, so, yeah, that, you know, might help a little. Uh, but there's no good evidence that, you know, if you've been exposed to guns uh, when you're young, that this helps you. The same way there used to be this argument, oh, there's so few alcohol problems in France because, they, and because they've been exposed to alcohol. And that seems to be entirely wrong. It seems to be just the opposite. There are more alcohol problems in France because they've been exposed to it. But, but the, the evidence isn't really good. And it doesn't hurt to train kids to look both ways to walk crossing streets. It doesn't to train kids that these are dangerous things where when you shoot somebody, they're dead forever. And it's hard to understand what dead forever means until you're an adult and your brains have... Yeah. So um, I'm a pediatrician. And yeah. I thank you for one of the best pediatric grand rounds I've heard. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> Comment and a question. Sure. The comment is that uh, there are a number of health bills that are coming up in Northern 
the legislature in the next couple of weeks, in particular House Bill 564, were to allow for the creation of gun-free zones around schools, which currently is against New Hampshire law. Lebanon tried to restrict guns right. in their school district, and we're not allowed to, so it's a problem not just in our backyard, it's in our living room, and this is a bill that's coming up next week. I'm taking a group of pediatric residents down to testify on this bill, and I'd like to throw the invitation out to join in this advocacy issue. My question for you is a lot of, there's a lot of advocacy happening at the state level and state legislature. Yeah. And I'm wondering what, in your view, are the more promising and uh, important. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so, so there's a whole, okay. Interestingly, after uh, the major shootings, the, the blue states get bluer and the red states get redder uh, in terms of guns. Uh, and uh, there's lots of really interesting things that people are doing. I, I mean, I love it that California, I mean, this is very self-interested, California and New Jersey now are funding gun research. Uh, because there's so little of it. And so that's, hey, we should do that. Uh, the thing that's being pushed all around is the red flag laws, uh, where uh, basically if, if you know, your brother, your husband, everybody knows that things are, that they're really, really dangerous, that they're, they're off their bipolar medicine, whatever it is, that you can petition for someone to take their gun away for a while. Uh, and, and then there's all these... Um, you know, ways to make sure that you don't infringe on their civil rights and whatever. But that's, that seems to be the, if you say, what's the big thing that's being pushed uh, by the advocates, that's, that's what that is. Yeah. Data yet in Utah about how trainable adults are for the gun babysitting law or modules that what? are, are um, No, no, we don't know. What, 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 the first thing we're doing is trying to see uh, how the gun trainers like it. Yeah. And, and so it looks, the preliminary data seems that they, they're fine and they, Teach it, and they. We know, we know. You know, again, the more you push on something, it's like, what do we know? I mean, we, we, I cannot say. What I can say for sure is that the places where few, with few guns and strong laws do much better than the places with many guns and weak laws. That's what you can say. Which law really matters? Which thing really matters? We, we, I don't think we know. It really, uh, it. The, the one thing that's is suge most suggestive, I think, is back, you know, universal background checks, but that the evidence is not overwhelming. Uh, Rand just did this review, and they claimed that CAP laws, child access prevention laws work, but they're wrong because they uh, use studies like ours, and we did not realize that the data we were using is no good because it turns out to be the vital statistics are no good in that in that area. So I wouldn't, and we do, we've done a study and we're going to do a bigger study. Uh, we asked, uh, is there basically a cap law? We describe what it is in your state. And half the, half the people say, yes, there is in every state. <laughs> it's like, this is that. Yeah. Okay. You uh, alluded to um, the, some of the mechanical uh, preventive yeah. uh, firearms. Yeah. And um, also, um, the bump stocks and the mass shootings mm -hmm. um, have gotten a lot of pushback from both the gun lobby and manufacturers. Is there any, what is the receptiveness of that group, and is there a way of reframing the argument so that the gun trainers, the gun shops, become the leaders? In it could. It's possible. It's certainly possible. We're, we're trying to figure out ways to um, get the 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 gun advocates to think about how they can reduce the flow of guns from them to the wrong kinds of people. But yeah, there's, it's, that's certainly a possibility. The, the, the gun lobby is against everything. 
So they will never, no matter how you reframe it, you're not going to get the gun lobby on board. But you can get um, local gun advocates and local gun groups um, and certainly gun owners uh, can be for this. But the gun owners who are, if you know, virtually every reasonable proposal is the overwhelming majority of Americans claim they're for it, the overwhelming majority, the large majority of gun owners claim they're for it. But then when push comes to shove, it doesn't happen because... Uh, I guess a year and a half ago in um, uh, Maine, they had a, a referendum about uh, to make it so that uh, there'd be universal uh, background checks. And, you know, you ask people, everybody was for it, but then uh, all the gun owners voted against it. One follow-up on that. Um, I think it's very important in the, in the discussion not to be saying the gun lobby will never do anything. Um, or or well, we'll the, 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 anywhere in this discussion will continue to, to yeah. diverge. And that's, that's well, the leaders of the gun lobby have been very, for since 1977 when the, when the radicals took over, and they've never done it. So I think sort of making compromises with them is the wrong strategy. I think you have to, until you get, it's, it's in their interest to be intransigent about that. Just a brief one. You're here in, in the right place at the right time. <clears throat> Medical education. Are there efforts yeah. underway? Yeah, yes. To, yes, there are. are we, you know, how, how's that coming? Oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a physician. I'm not the expert. I leave that. To, but, but the answer is yes. There are a lot of people, and this is our lane, who are trying to change medical education. I know. I just talked this week to uh, two people from Mass General Hospital, and they're going to be training residents uh, uh, this in, in June uh, with, with you know, patients or whatever. But yes, and, and there's a... Yeah, we're doing a randomized control trial in Colorado, seeing if um, uh, whether or not physicians talking to patients can change whether or not they, how they store their guns. Yeah. Okay, one more question. You, you had your hand. Yeah. Yes. 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 Uh, I'm a Vermonter, and I don't want to be left out. Oh, okay. <laughs> First of all, uh, I do hope you terrific work to wrap over into Vermont sooner or later. Yeah. Uh, Crime guns flow. We had a, um, how do Canadian criminals get their guns from the United States? How do Mexican criminals get their guns from the United States? We had a, uh, 
someone from Jamaica as a research assistant uh, a, a number of years ago, and he discovered that 80% of the crime gun, the guns used in crime in Jamaica, came from three counties in Florida. And it just, but, but. We've reached our time, yeah. um, but Dr. Hemingway.